Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to the Red Box podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Well, what a week it's been since we last convened. We had the budget that was not supposed to rock the boat, followed by the shock resignation of Ian Duncan Smith, and the last rights being read for George Osborne's leadership ambitions. Times columnist Rachel Sylvester will help survey the wreckage. Some think IDS's decision to quit was less to do with benefit cuts and more to do with his dream of Britain leaving the EU. Redbox regular Professor Matthew Goodwin warns that turnout will be key to securing Brexit. And finally, we have columnist Hugo Rifkin on the rise of Boaty McBoatface. And if you don't know what that's about, you'll have to keep listening to find out. But we start with Rachel Sylvester and the real split in the Tory party. Ian Duncan Smith's resignation has exposed the old Tory divide between free market liberals and patrician conservatives. The Tories have always been a coalition of economist readers and country life devotees, of buccaneers and brigadiers. George Osborne is on one side of this and IDS on the other, but the Chancellor is looking increasingly isolated. He's got to realise that being clever isn't enough if people don't think you care. So Rachel, you wrote your column on precisely this subject this week, and it's a really interesting distinction that, that in a way, George Osborne and Ian Duncan Smith are sort of two figureheads, in a way, of the, these two wings of the of the Tory party. Yeah, I think what's interesting is, in a way, I think the resignation wasn't only about Europe, or wasn't mainly about Europe. It was about the fact that Ian Duncan Smith is a very different kind of conservative to George Osborne, and to an extent, David Cameron. I think Cameron almost bridges this divide between the kind of patrician Tories and the free market liberals. Uh, He's a sort of shire Tory, son of a stockbroker, you know, grew up in the countryside, now lives in Notting Hill, sort of uber moderniser type. But he still has a bit of that sort of heritage. And that's, that's um, what a good leader's got to do, is to bring together. You have to bring together. And I think Osborne's problem, perhaps, is that he's he's not got any hinterland with that kind of traditional Tory party. And I, I get the impression, talking particularly to the new generation, the younger MPs, that they're far more worried about this kind of Ian Duncan Smith agenda of social justice, you know, whether or not you can use the market to help the have-nots as well as the have-yachts, as Boris Johnson likes to put it. <laughs> and that this might be a, an almost more interesting division when it comes to the next Tory leadership election than Brexit, which will kind of maybe, we all hope, be over by then. And to what extent do you think the party splits people who back Brexit are more on the Ian Duncan Smith side and then George Osborne's on the Remain side and is also... It's quite interesting. I mean, there are sort of cross currents, but I spoke to David David Willits about this this week, who's the kind of great Tory philosopher king, (laughs) author of Modern Conservatism, Two Brains Willits and all of that. And he said he thinks there is a correlation because the Brexiteers almost wanting to, you know, it's protecting a sort of traditional Mm. England, really. uh, And sort of, you know, it would be in the... the, 
19th century, it would be the sort of landowners riding to London to protect their interests against with the protectionist corn laws. And now it's the sort of more traditional Tories rallying around to protect the sort of national sovereignty against the sort of more free market, outward-looking, um, pro-business, pro-Europeans who want to sort of um, engage with the outside world. Hugo, what did you make of Ian Duncan Smith's resignation and where did you place it on the it's all about Europe or it's all about benefits sort of scale? I thought it was not at all about benefits and it was half about about Europe and half about just pure peak. He's never (laughs) been rated by the rest of them and he's been dangling by a thread because of Europe. And this is the point that he went. I mean, I, I, I completely take uh, Rachel's sort of, uh, division of the Tories into the two types. I think that's absolutely true. A complication with that is Duncan Smith is a very poor advocate for his side. He's, um, <laughs> he's not, he's not um, a, and indeed it's part of his appeal, but he's not an intellectual. Mm. Uh, or if he is an intellectual, he's not a very good intellectual. And so while there is this sort of Tory tradition, patrician tradition, that's very difficult to say, uh, it, it's very hard to see who you could quite identify that with in a kind of a in a sort of thinking sense these days. It's almost like Charles Moore conservatism. But, of course, you know, he's, he's a long way away from what's actually well, Michael, going on. Michael Gove and Boris Johnson, to an extent, are trying to sort of get into that territory, mm. I think, both with Brexit but also talking about, you know, Boris, last time we interviewed him, talked about being the warriors of the dispossessed. Yeah. And Michael Gove is very much a sort of campaigner for social mobility. That's his big thing. He really is the Tories' great social reformer. And, and he does give a sort of intellectual ballast. But he's obviously also personally friends with um, George and Dave. But it, but it's so not. So it's 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 a com- it's more complicated yeah. than my rather simplistic. No no I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm not criticising at all. But I mean for mm. for Gove it's not quite a, a patrician thing. Mm. It's more of a kind of I mean I guess it's a little bit churchy almost. Although he's he's not particularly churchy. You know it's a it is that kind of compassionate working class conserv- conservatism. But it doesn't it. It, to me, that's quite that's a bit different from the kind of um, the sort of ruling over the world in a kindly way from the, sort of mm. the clubs of St James mm. sort of thing, which has always been the, that real sort of patrician Tory backbone. Hey, Matthew, what do you make of this? How, how damaged do you think George Osborne's been by the resignation and also the fallout from the budget? Well, I think Osborne's clearly been damaged, and I'd expect this week to see that reflected in a lot of the polling and survey data. I think underlying this is a really important trade-off for the Conservatives. They are about to go into a referendum on Europe where they are, at least the leadership, will arguably alienate lots of blue-collar voters who are holding a very different outlook on that issue from Cameron and Co and Osborne. On the other hand, you know, you can see the case that Ian Duncan Smith was trying to make, which is that with Labour in disarray, actually, there's a really big opening for the Conservatives if they can keep those economically disaffected, more financially insecure voters in the Conservative fold. That's what they've got to do between now and 2020 in order to, you know, um, not just stay where they are, but potentially lead to a more significant realignment in British politics. And that is certainly possible as long as they manage the next six months uh, well, which, of course, is not necessarily going to be the case. And how much do you, do any of you think the, the, the problems that George Osborne in particular has got himself in is to do with ideology and actually is to do, it's more to do with whether it's competence or the idea he's got a tin ear to actually a lot of David Cameron's high-minded rhetoric about compassionate conservatism. Osborne seems a bit blind to that or can't sell it properly. He almost lacks emotional intelligence, yeah. so he's incredibly clever, but he he lacks the ability to understand how things are going to make 
people feel, how things are going to come across and how he's going to come across personally. And that sort of plays into this political tenure. I mean, there have been an extraordinary number of things, going back to the sort of Omni Shambles budget with the cutting the top rate of tax, opacity tax, um, more recently the tax credits, and now the sort of disability cuts. point is at the same time as helping out richer people so it's he doesn't seem to really truly internalize this idea that the parties still are the Tories still are seen as the party of the rich which is I think their big toxic most fundamental problem and in order to counter that you have to take every opportunity to scotch if you think it's a myth the myth and Osborne just hasn't really seemed to realize it's a problem and he, he completely convinced himself and those around him that you just couldn't be too tough on welfare. It, it, yeah. was, it was because some of what they did was popular before. They could keep on doing it. It would keep on being popular. And they've come really crashing right up against the wall on that. Yes, I think, I mean, one of the, the strange things about Osborne is he's a, as, I mean, as, as Rachel wrote this morning, he's a he's an instinctive social liberal. In fact, he's probably more than a social liberal. He's a social progressive, but he doesn't comprehend that has, that that has anything to do with money and where you spend it mm. and so his kind of his economic outlook which is it, it incorporates a whole variety of sort of swinging savage cuts that that affect the poorest in society he probably doesn't particularly think about being an enemy of the poorest in society in any sort of way at all because he's because his his social progressive progressivism just doesn't have a an economic aspect to it it's, it's, it's quite odd i think he's almost it's exactly as you say matt he's thinking about the strategy mm. rather than re- the reality there is a I sense that, a, that, that, that they're very key they're very excited <coughs> about a columnist well, also t- columnists are all terrific but you know if a columnist <laughs> praises their strategy that's a win rather than Actually, however many people are going to lose money out of this rather than what the public thinks. Yeah, Yeah. I had a tutor at college who said, if you can't be clever enough to be sensible, then you're not really clever at all. And I always (laughs) think of that with George Osborne, that she used to use it when somebody was sort of banging on about, you know, some psychological therapy or whatever. But it was all to do with, um, you know, basically, he hasn't got the sort of emotional intelligence that goes with the intellectual intelligence. Well, I'm sure we will turn to uh, George Osborne's uh, leadership ambitions and the, the splits in the Tory party. But on the subject of splits, Matthew, let's talk about Europe. Much of the debate about Britain's EU referendum is overlooking a key variable, turnout. In opinion polls, the outers look more committed and more likely to turn out. Meanwhile, the Conservative base is split and pro-EU progressives are not currently being given a strong call to arms from Jeremy Corbyn. Will a lacklustre voter turnout operation undermine Remain's chances? And if turnout does favour outers, what should inners do about it? So let's take your last uh, question first there. What what should the inners do to try and enthuse people? Because it's a big problem trying to enthuse people to be excited about the status quo. Well, I've been talking to some of the people involved in the Remain camp as well as those involved in the Leave camp. And if you talk to them about a month ago, they hadn't quite registered that turnout was going to be as big an issue as I think it will be, whereas the Leave camp were talking about this a lot earlier. They have been saying from the outset, look, our guys are more committed, they're more likely to turn out. Now, what we've had um, over the past couple of weeks has been a series of opinion polls and surveys that have pretty much confirmed actually what the Brexiteers have argued. We had the recent telephone poll, which Linton Crosby, of course, talked about, the ORB poll, which suggested that once you take account of people's intention to vote, uh, leave actually picks up around an eight-point lead over Remain. Uh, And that's largely because of those young pro-EU progressives who are significantly less likely to say that they turn out. And don't forget, lots of them have just left the electoral register as well over the last year. Around 800,000 people are now off the register, and many of those are those pro-EU Remainers. So how can you get them out? 
you know, inners essentially, I think, have two options. One is, you know, this is not like Scotland, right? I should say that. I mean, these young progressives really don't care about this issue like like they like the their counterparts in Scotland did. But I see inners as having two issues, uh, two, two, two avenues. Sorry, one is, don't let Nigel Farage decide your future, right? And you turn this into a sort of negative strategy and a, a sort of ne- a na- narrative against a sort of divisive individual. And the other is to try and you know, influence those younger voters by pressing buttons in their social networks. And that's what they're trying to do, you know, get get their friends to talk to one another and, and get sort of non-political, non-business people to, to intervene. This is going to be very difficult for them. In particular, young Corbynistas and so on, they didn't turn out at the general election last year. The over 55s, they did turn out. So we know if we're looking at the track record of this, actually there's, there's something for the Remain camp to be worried about. And Rachel, uh, David Cameron did an interview with The Independent on Sunday at the weekend where he, he talked about the fear of sleepwalking into Brexit because people just assume, well, if it's fine, well, you know, somebody else will vote and we'll stay in and, that, you know, the status quo will continue and because people aren't enthused about mm. it. I think they're, they're, that's why they're banking on Project Fear because yeah. they think they can scare everyone into the ballot box or sufficient numbers of people. And they think that could be the emotional driver to get people to actually go out and vote. It's risky because I think people might just, if they're not quite scared enough, they might just be turned off by the whole thing. And if there's no enthusiasm at all and all the energy, at the moment all the energy and the momentum seems to be on the outside. Uh, and if that continues, then that's, um, you know, that could be a problem. On the one hand, it really should be more like Scotland. And it should be like Scotland in a way that enormously favours Remain because Remain should have available to it the strategies of both sides in the Scottish referendum. <laughs> they should have a, the, the sort of overwhelming project fear that says, go out there and save your job, otherwise your factory is going to close. And they should also have this sort of social, trendy, progressive left upsurge, which, yes, did so well out of in Scotland, which you'd think would be there through and indeed way beyond the sort of the Corbynista trend. Project fear just makes... just turns people off and makes them just just not go near it and I think people are either starting to not believe it or don't yet believe it I think there needs to be a lot more from business for that to work and the second point is the second problem is Jeremy Corbyn (laughs) that Jeremy Corbyn is not there as a passionate remain because he is not a passionate remain because if he were not the leader of the Labour Party I think it's a very open question whether he'd be remain at all Um, and so so he's not Hey it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today there sort of uniting his his base in this sort of moral crusade to uh, 
our, our duties towards our duties towards Europe, our international solidarity, and all that kind of stuff, because he bluntly doesn't believe it. There's also, I think, an issue about um, women voters that uh, Deborah Mattinson from Britain Thinks did some research a couple of months ago, which found that women voters were just particularly turned off by the debate. It was seen as sort of men in suits, basically shouting <laughs> yeah. at each other. Men, men in silly green ties. Yeah, it, well, exactly, worse, revolting yeah. lime green ties. <laughs> but um, the, but the, there's a sort of lack of engagement in different types of ways with different sorts of voters. It's all rather kind of um, monochrome. I think the Corbyn factor is going to be incredibly important. We wrote in the Red Box last week about uh, an opinion poll which showed that 43% of adults do not know what Labour's position is on the EU. I find that staggering. That goes up to 50% for the under 40s. Okay, now this is the party that wanted to take us into the Euro. This is the party of Tony Blair. Okay, it was divided over Europe in the 70s and 80s, but, you know, come on. There is a failure here on the part of the Labour Party to communicate its position. And I think were we to see Brexit sneak this by a few points... I think that would pile unprecedented amounts of pressure onto Corbyn for failing to do his part. We should we should also mention that we're we're recording this while there are still details emerging from Brussels about the uh, terror attacks. But immediately, even at the very first reports of them happening, we immediately had Brexiteers tweeting quite astonishing stuff, using using the breaking news as an argument for for leaving. I don't know what any of you make of that. Is is that a good strategy? I mean, it. it well, that swings both ways because you'll yeah, have the so, pro yeah. the inners saying, you know, it's a threat to security to leave. I think it's important also to keep in mind that, you know, when we went through the Paris attacks, the opinion polls stayed really static. Brexiteers hoped that would be a big breakthrough for them. Didn't turn out to be the case. And I think also when it comes to these attacks, you know, essentially a lot of this is priced in. So the Leave voters, this will confirm everything they fear, like, well, there's chaos over there, there's threats to national security. Essentially, what the Brexiteers are failing to do at the moment is not win on the security and identity narrative, but they have to somehow make headway among those moderate swing voters on the economic argument. That's clear in all of the research. The immigration stuff, they're already miles ahead on that. But on the economic argument, they're not cutting through to those risk-averse women, to younger voters, to soft uh, Remain and soft Leave voters. Is and that's where they're they struggling. They don't know what their model is. They can't agree. I think largely it's around a, a, a lack of credibility, a lack of a, a, a sort of articulate alternative uh, on that. But I think also, you know, making that, that case against the status quo is very, very difficult. I mean, this is not like uh, some of the other referendums that we've had in Europe. It really is uh, down to the Brexiteers to make that alternative look plausible and I hope, you know, credible. It's very difficult for them to do that. The, the security angle does not favour Brexiteers as much as they'd like to pretend. Mm. On the one hand, I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no indication that, that Schengen harms our security, you know, uh, in, sitting here, our security on, on, on the other side of the channel. And for another, I mean, one, generally the overriding public sentiment, certainly that came out of Paris, was not that this was an attack on another country, that we that, that we could could be associated with or not associated with, but that it was an attack on us, mm. and I think these things do, in a sort of bleak and paradoxical way, almost serve the notion of a European identity. You can't you can't. It's very hard to look at attacks on Brussels and think that's happening somewhere else that has nothing to do with us. And it increases the sense of solidarity rather than the sense of putting up borders and oh, look. I may be I may be sort of speaking from within my own my own bubble, but yeah. I, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I certainly think so. Also the need to exchange information, exchange yeah. fingerprint data, all of the things you know, the arrest warrant, things that through the EU are available, 
which might not be available or yeah. would um, take a huge amount of negotiation to create without the EU. Now, one thing we've been doing uh, since David Cameron got his deal in Brussels is the red box sweepstake, where we've been asking all the panellists and red box readers to predict the outcome of the referendum. So I'm looking for the percentage of the vote you think Remain is going to get. Crikey. Well, if you looked at the uh, betting markets this morning, Leave has a 31% chance, Remain has a 69% chance. And if you looked at the average poll of polls, Remain is on 51%, Leave is on 49 I honestly think it's a hell of a lot closer than people think it is. I really do think it's literally 50-50, you know, remain on 50.5. But I really think it is closer than a lot of the... A lot of observers think, and I think as well there's a real problem within the polling industry still because there are very significant differences Mm. based on whether you're polling people online versus telephone. And the pollsters need to get this right as much as the political analysts do. Rachel? Oh gosh, I'm hopeless at this kind of thing. Um, (laughs) I was going to say 55, 45, but now um, Matthew's made me think I'm too... generous to remain but i'll stick with 55 55 and hugo well so i sort of think two contradictory things i think either remain will win big or or leave will win small right um <laughs> if you see what i mean yeah. I, 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 I don't i don't think remain will win small yeah i think if remain wins it'll be overwhelming and if whereas if whereas if leave wins it'll be it'll be narrow and of those two happening I think the most likely is that Remain will win. So by the logic of my own perhaps absurd argument I've just made, <laughs> I think I have to remain on 60.1. 60.1. Well, that's made me feel better because I think I've got 50 point, 59.5. Right. So I'm glad that you've... You're not going to repeat these, are you, publicly? <laughs> yes, they all go on. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a spreadsheet, there's a graph thing which is live online. Are you going to keep include updating. caveats? Because my caveat is very No, important. it's very difficult to do caveats on a graph. <laughs> Hugo can have a subclause. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lots of asterisks after everybody's <laughs> prediction. Uh, so, Hugo, let's uh, finally now turn our attention to Boaty McBoatface. Yes. Asked to vote on the name of a new polar research vessel in an online poll, the great British public has chosen the name Boaty McBoatface. As a piece of gentle internet subversion, this is obviously hilarious, yet it also shows us the danger of seeking mass political involvement to reach a decision from people more interested in the decision than in the consequences of the decision. Or, to put that another way, could we not say that Jeremy Corbyn is the Boaty McBoatface of the Labour Party? Well, you've somehow managed to take what I thought was just a silly story and make quite an interesting political point about this, about the sort of the rise of the online... Yeah. movement dictating things and I think when you've been on the podcast before we've talked about whether the Cecil Rhodes statue or sure. you know, banning Donald Trump <coughs> from Britain this is a phenomenon and this is Boaty McBoatface is the yeah the yeah. best and newest example you know I stared at this last night and I thought this this rings some bell this means something to me and then I thought of it and I started laughing then I stopped laughing thought no this is real um, what it is it's about it's vicariousness it's about it being easy to make an impact in a democratic political sphere which you then don't need to do anything about. It's about political engagement is always good. However, mass political engagement becomes a bit dangerous when it is broad but not deep. I've lost count of the number of Labour activists of long standing who I've spoken to about what's going on in their in their parties and their bits, bits of the country and about just the impossibility of getting almost anybody who either 
joined in a, as a sort of three-pound affiliate or even or even joined the party properly to vote for, for Jeremy Corbyn to actually be involved in the process, to actually to get be involved, out and do something, get yeah, out yeah. and do something, yeah. be involved in what they do in order to to win the election. Because it was it was more about the the signal of doing this. Thus, my work is done. And there's there's something a bit like that going on with Boaty McBoatface, <laughs> as in it's people going. Doesn't matter to me what happens to a vessel that has to go around the world being called Booty McBoatface. I just think this will be a fun thing to do, and it fills a couple of minutes, and I can talk about it on Twitter. And so I think it's it's sort it's, it's definitely political engagement. It's a slightly dark side of political engagement. It's also isn't it the power of a very small number of people to sort of distort something. So actually, I don't know how many people voted in the voting. It's about, it's about 20,000. 20, okay, and so the number of people who voted for Jeremy Corbyn was 0.5% of the British electorate. Mm-hmm. So I think the wisdom of crowds theory holds so long as the crowd gets involved. But with a lot of these kind of almost pseudo-democratic processes, it's a tiny, tiny section of society. It's not even a, it's a yeah. crowdlet of a crowdlet. It's a, like a tiny group in a room, really, all talking to each other, all agreeing with each other. So when uh, the Corbynistas do these slightly bogus polls, they did one on Syria, and I think they've done one yeah. on Trident, where yeah. they say, oh, Jeremy Corbyn has the overwhelming support of the mass movement of people. No, he doesn't. He has the support of a tiny section of the electorate, of his own selectorate, actually, mm-hmm. uh, who bothered to vote in the online poll. And it's not at all democratic. Yeah. Uh, and, and and that's what's quite dangerous, is that it's it's a pretense of democracy. So it gives a veneer... Sorry, this is a rather serious point. No, but it's, it's, it's quite vote, true. Yeah. It gives a veneer of credibility to something that is actually sort of autocratic in a way. I think that, that takes us into sort of broader European politics as well, in that... And if you look at the populist parties, they always argue they want to resolve issues by referenda. Mm-hmm. And the, the name of the game there is a very different conception of democracy. It's not one around the marketplace of ideas and pluralism and lots of different groups competing over different interests. It's essentially about putting a typically a small group of people against an even smaller group of people on a very sensitive issue. And much in the same way, I think the big fear when it comes to the referendum on the Remain side is that essentially a small number of people, simply by being mobilised, will fundamentally change our relationship with the wider world. I mean, basically it's this idea that mass political engagement only works when it really, really is mass. Mm. If you open up mass political engagement and only a few people bother, you end up with Boaty McBoatface. Well, like uh, the noisiest voices. Yes. And, or the extremes or the fringes. Or just just, a, or just silly. Just yeah. a slightly different agenda from the one that you mm. opened up the field to in the first mm. place. My favorite, my favorite response to this is I think the, the, the US Air Force is now looking for a, a name for, a, for a, new, a new bomber they're, they're commissioning. And there is a sort of growing Twitter campaign to call it Nuki McMeltface. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is just it's sort of vicious and nasty. No, I've, I, my issue with it is I don't. I'm not sure Boaty McBoatface is very funny. Am I wrong to think no, that? No, I think it's, it's very a, funny. I will it? now forever look at Jeremy Corbyn as Boaty. Well, no, <laughs> now maybe it's become funny now. Well, I think I, I don't think it was. It's a bit. I don't think it was. No, it wasn't even meant to be a fantastic joke. I think it was whoever was putting together this online poll was saying so. You, it basically did in the thing you wrote about it because you might want to call it this, you might want to call it that, you might want to call it Boaty McBoatface, whatever. Just okay. just and everyone was like, "Yes, that one." That's all. Okay. Uh, you know, I let them off. Yeah. So I, 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 I don't think it's someone's sort of best idea of a, a funny name for a boat. <laughs> But we saw this uh, in the recent weeks. I think the Daily Express splashed on news that we were definitely going to leave the EU because a, a poll on their website found 92% of people <laughs> wanted yeah. to leave. These are the voodoo polls. Yeah. And you yeah. would have thought after the general election we would all be a little bit wiser in terms of how we uh, report and uh, 
and analyze uh, these kinds of data. I mean, this is absolute madness. This is like me uh, asking all of my students uh, to voluntarily opt in to a poll to tell me how wonderful I am at lecturing (laughs) at my university and to basically ignore anybody and everybody who didn't turn out on the day or, you know, who who, who wasn't, you know, within my class. And I think it's, it's a real sorry state of affairs when when national newspapers are reporting voodoo polls on their front page as 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 validating a particular view of the world but you've also just volunteered to become the boaty boat face of your students as well <laughs> which is which uh seems as um good a place as any to finish it you can find out more about everything we've been talking about at thetimes.co.uk let us know what you think about any of the subjects we've been talking about via twitter just find us at times red box where you can also submit your eu sweepstake prediction just use the hashtag red box sweepstake you can subscribe to the podcast via itunes or on your android device but for now from matt rachel hugo and me it's goodbye Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.